everyone, this is Marie Lipman in our Pornos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. Public vote for the constitutional amendments held in late June enables Putin to stay in power until 2036. Shortly before the vote, Putin warned the political elites against hunting for successors, and the warning appears to be well understood. Nobody among the elites dares to challenge Putin directly. He still remains a leader of no alternative. Meanwhile, Putin's approval rating has been at a relatively low level since 2018, and the level of public trust to him has gone down from just under 60% to slightly over 20% in a matter of less than three years. The economic situation is grim, and there is no reason to expect an improvement in conceivable future. Since early July, the city of Khabarovsk in the Russian Far East has become the scene of mass protests after local governor Sergei Furgal was arrested on charges of serious crimes committed 15 years ago. As we discussed in the previous episode of this podcast, people in Khabarovsk regarded those charges as politically motivated, and the protests that began in early July have not subsided. As the protest goes on, its participants carry signs that sound increasingly anti-Moscow and anti-Putin. The person whom the Kremlin dispatched to Khabarovsk as acting governor has only deepened people's anger. The authorities have not resorted to brutal force, apparently concerned about not antagonizing in Khabarovsk even further. It looks, at least as we speak on August 6, that the government doesn't have a solution to the upsurge of public outrage in Khabarovsk and simply expects the protest to peter out. Khabarovsk protests and the economic problems notwithstanding, Russia still looks generally quiet, as compared to neighboring Belarus, where President Lukashenko was openly challenged by political opponents, political protests grew nationwide, and police brutalities have led to a dramatic destabilization. And yet, many political analysts argue that the situation in Russia is uncertain, and the regime is in a state of transition from authoritarianism to dictatorship. Recently, a group of some of Russia's best political analysts co-authored a report uh-huh. edited yeah. by Kirill Rogov and published by Liberal Mission Fund. The report is titled New Illegitimacy, and the report's authors use phrases such as erosion of Putin's charisma, societal divisions, rupture of political practices. One of the authors, Gleb Pavlovsky, speaks about the Kremlin, and I quote, overstepping the limits of loyalty towards citizens and even its own functionaries, end of quote. It is politically unfathomable, uh, Pavlovsky says, to expect that the citizens will stay loyal since their existence within the current political environment is in a state of unpredictable change. In Moscow, political forecasts, short-term and long-term, more dramatic, less dramatic, abound. With my guest today, Denis Volkov of Levada Center, we will discuss the current situation from the standpoint of the public opinion and the mindset of the Russian people. Hello, Denis. Hello. So let us start with Khabarovsk, and let us go back to 2018, when Sergei Forgal was elected governor. He was elected governor, I want to remind, against the Kremlin will. He defeated the Kremlin's candidate. How did that happen? How do you explain his victory? 
Well, Khabarovsk region was among several regions who showed this protest voting. And I think, and many experts in Russia think, that it was the aftermath of the pension reform, but also the five-year decline in standards of living. So I think that in Khabarovsk it also coincided with elite conflicts, and people in Khabarovsk got Furgal as a governor, not from United Russia Party, but from LDPR Party. We've conducted a couple of focus groups last year discussing the aftermath of these elections, and people explained to me that they were not voting for Furgal, but against a candidate from United Russia Party, Sport. So it was protest voting mainly. Right. Do you think there was at that point in time this motive of we are voting against Moscow, not just against the candidate of United Russia Party, the Kremlin's candidate, but also an anti-Moscow vote? It seems that such sentiments are characteristic of that far away Far East region, not just in Khabarovsk, but also in other regions of the Far East. Uh, was there this motivation of voting against Moscow because we in the Far East dislike Moscow policy vis-a-vis those regions? Yes, exactly. Partly it was voting against a candidate from Moscow, and it's not uh, characteristic only of Khabarovsk. People uh, in many regions in Russia, they want to have a, a native candidate, candidate from their region. Not only candidate, but people in the local government that like local guys from local elites, who, as they say, they know Uh, local problems, they are not sent from Moscow, and um, in Khabarovsk as well, they were saying, so why are you sending us uh, all these uh, people who are not interested? Not only don't know local problems, but they are not interested in solving them. So this feeling was rather widespread in Khabarovsk, and uh, voting for Furgal, it was also voting for a local guy who actually became very popular, uh, first because he was uh, elected on this protest wave, but also then he showed himself very able politician. Many will call him populist, but people liked uh, what he was doing, and one of his most spectacular gestures was uh, selling the yacht of the previous governor, also cutting the salaries of bureaucrats, and the third one, it was free meal in schools for school children. And interestingly, because it was broadly publicized through his social networks, his Instagram, that has almost 400,000 subscribers, People in Moscow now, when we are talking to them, what is good about him? They are naming exactly the same measures in Moscow, in Yaroslavl. So it, it has gone viral what he has done there. Right. We will get to um, how the events in Khabarovsk are perceived in Moscow and elsewhere in the European part of Russia. But I would like to draw the attention to the fact that when Russia voted for the constitutional amendments, the vote lasted for a week in late June, the results of uh, the returns of that vote was different in the Far East. We have an expert in Russia, his name is Spilkin, who applies mathematical methods to analyzing what he calls election anomalies, which, well, in fact, is solid evidence of fraud. 
And Spilkin recently divided the Russian regions into four groups. And group number one is the group where the vote on the amendments was the lowest, the support for amendments, including the zeroing amendment that extended Putin's time in office, was the lowest. So the first group consists of 16 regions, and 10 of them are far eastern and northern regions of Russia, so far away places. Spilkin implies that those are the regions with relatively low fraud, or maybe no fraud at all, but this seems that Furgal, who still was governor at the time, did not care to deliver evidence of high support for the amendments. Do you think or did you hear in your focus groups that that also contributed to what happened to Furgal later on? Well, I would say that uh, ordinary people, they're not following that closely, what was going on in uh, Far East. But, well, Spilkin is a very good specialist, but I can only add that it may be not only fraud as it is, but also all these nudges, urges, pressure on the voters to make the right right choice, yes, choice uh, in, in favor of official candidate or official results. So it's not only that they rewrite the protocols, it's also that they, in many regions, uh, the authorities urge uh, people to make the so-called right choice. So in this sense, Forgal was not doing this because maybe he was not interested in uh, in doing this. But uh, ordinary people in focus groups do not go in uh, these details. For them and for people in Khabarovsk, I think, what is interesting and important, then when already they were voting for him, or not even for him, but against the candidate from Moscow, they felt that they were defying Moscow already. And many people were speaking about punishment for this defiance. And several months after the elections, already the capital of the federal district, which was in Khabarovsk at that time, was moved to Vladivostok, a rival city for Khabarovsk. And probably, I think, the decision was made long before the elections. But it was, what is important, it was understood in Khabarovsk exactly as a punishment for this voting. People also were talking about uh, that other punishments will come. For example, they were saying that, for example, the direct flights from Moscow to Khabarovsk will be cancelled uh, as a punishment, uh, though it was not the case. And uh, in this sense, they were already waiting that them and the governor who defined Kremlin will be punished in some way. And when this arrest came, it was understood as this kind of punishment from Moscow. And from Khabarovsk, it also spread to the wider Russia. And so it's not about expert understanding. It's about development of the situation back from 2018 which is more important than any expert knowledge and expert opinions. Indeed. Yeah, we will return to that, how expert opinion, expert analysis relates to what people think. And is it always that what appears very important to experts is also of high importance to the people? So let us get to the focus groups that you did in Moscow, as far as I understand, and maybe also elsewhere, on the perception of uh, the current protest in Khabarovsk. What do people think? And I would point out that the awareness about Khabarovsk protests appears to be very high in the other center polls. 
it seems that up to, if I'm not mistaken, 80% of people are aware or at least partly aware of what is going on. If you could please talk about that, the perception, the awareness, and how the awareness relates to the way Habarovsk protests are covered by national television. Uh, Nevada mm-hmm. Center also did a lot of work over the years, and you personally on the role of television as a major source of information for a majority of Russians. Yes, indeed. According to our polls, more than 80% are aware of the situation in Khabarovsk, and it struck, I think, people's imagination what is going there. And my understanding is that the facts from Khabarovsk about this protest, about the arrest, they got from television for sure. The majority still watch television, First of all, uh, older generations, so the television is still primary source of information. But obviously, from focus groups in Moscow and Yaroslav, we see that people turn to information, to uh, social networks. So uh, I think the mechanism here is that uh, they got the major facts from television, they were interested in what is going on there, and then they turned to social networks for opinions, for additional facts, and uh, more and more people are doing so. I think, according to our polls, uh, about actually one-third, one-third or even more, uh, one-third of population already using social networks freely for additional information. And I think with stories like this, more people turn to social networks than usual. So why I'm saying that? Because people in focus groups are talking exactly about these measures that Rugal was taking, and they tend to be very sympathetic about him. This also is reflected in our polls about the major politicians who have trust of Russians. And in July, for the first time, we see Furgal in top 10 most trusted politicians in our open-ended question. So obviously it's not from a Russian state-controlled television that they're getting this positive information about him and about the protests. Why positive? Because again, in our polling representative surveys, we see that more than half of Russians are positive and sympathetic towards the people who are going out and probably the governor as well. Your recent publication about the perception of um, events in Khabarovsk is titled People's Servant, um, if I'm correct. Is this how people in your focus groups refer to Forgal or is it your own wording? No, absolutely. It was people from focus groups. I would say people's champion that he, as people already outside of Khabarovsk, how they see it, that they say people support him, and for the majority it means that he was doing everything right, so that the people would not be mistaken, again, it's a quotation from, uh, a quote from focus group, that he is a people's champion, people's servant, he is a good guy, People in Khabarovsk love him, so, I mean, it's what we got from people. It was not my invention. Right. And what about the charges against Forkal? Does this mean that people are not interested or people don't care? I mean, people in your focus groups, uh, Mm -hmm. they apparently are aware of very serious charges brought against Forkal. How do people take that? 
Well, yes, everyone knows about it, but they say, well, you know, in 90s, uh, every, everything happened in 90s. Let us look at other politicians. Let us uh, closely look at the effects in their biographies. For sure, many of them will have something similar to Frugal. So, obviously, for, for many people, it's more important what he was doing and that people in Khabarovsk liked him. And it does not that matter what skeletons in the cupboard he has. Right. So you're telling us that there is real solidarity verbally with Khabarovsk. However, events in support of people in Khabarovsk have been very small compared to Khabarovsk itself and uh, even in absolute numbers. There were barely hundreds of people in the regions in the Far East and I think rather dozens elsewhere in Russia, an expression of public solidarity that were very easily dissolved and suppressed by local authorities. Is that correct? Absolutely. We see that though they are sympathetic with uh, Khabarovsk and its, uh, its people, quite few are ready to express uh, solidarity in the streets. And I think that people, well, first of all, see it as a rather local event. And also, I think it even maybe more important that the majority think that it is useless, still useless to go and protest and that people in Khabarovsk will not achieve what they want. They will not get the governor back. And I think it's a quite widespread feeling in public opinion. But at the same time, well, they think that they, uh, people in Khabarovsk can get something out of it. They can express their dissatisfaction with the situation and maybe get something nice uh, from the federal authorities, some cuts in tariffs, for example, and so on. So they, uh, they say that this is the right thing to do, but rather, in a sense, rather useless. Useless in achieving the main goal, as they put it, to release Furgal and have him back as a governor. So let us now get to uh, more general perceptions from what people think about Khabarovsk and what goes on there to the developments nationwide and things that are, are now experienced by most Russians. Let us start with the perception of the COVID pandemic. Some analysts already say that people have already forgotten about it. Well, of course, forgotten quote-unquote forgotten. Of course, they remember, but they don't care too much anymore. And they basically had the pandemic passed them. Is this the perception that you come across in your focus groups? Well, I think uh, yes and no, not only in focus groups, but in the surveys as well. For sure, there are differences between, for example, Moscow, which was the city that was struck by pandemic uh, most of all, and I think in Moscow, people still have their impressions about it. What are they? I think the most important is uh, this closure of many uh, organizations, uh, many shops and restaurants and so on. That, and this part of businesses suffered, really suffered during this shutdown and they're not recovered yet. Some are shut down permanently now because they're out of business. What is also important that people lost money in cuts in salaries, some just lost their jobs, not only in Moscow, but across the country. I think it's about, according to our polls, it's about one third 
of population who was affected by all these measures. But also in Moscow, what we got, that harsh and strict measures that were taken, they were not very popular. And uh, big fines that people had to pay, sometimes several times. And people are talking about it in focus groups. We will release soon the surveys about it. We see that uh, people in Moscow didn't like these strict restrictions. And in the aftermath, we see that the ratings of the Moscow governor suffered. Uh, because he he was seen as the author of uh, architect of these harsh measures, so yes, in this sense, people remember, and we will still feel the aftermath, economic aftermath of this pandemic for for some time, for sure. But I think what is also important here in Moscow that this economic aftermath, uh, after it coincided with other economic troubles such as. Ruble collapsed in early uh, spring when this agreement, a uh, pact agreement, was uh, disabled. Uh, we see that oil prices went down, ruble national currency went down, and uh, it was felt already before e- all these uh, harsh measures were taken. I see. So let us let us now get to the perception of the amendments and, of course, the zeroing amendments. If we look at what analysts are saying, and in particular in the report that I cited earlier, we see wording such as egregious rigging, outrageous violations of electoral procedures, unprecedented, quote-unquote, anomalies, the implication being, of course, that the anomalies are, in fact, fraud. Grigory Yudin, one of the co-authors of the report, says that the vote on the amendments was a key political question, and he analyzes the public perception of, of the vote as the perception of a key political event. Do people indeed see it this way? When you talk to people in focus groups, when you ask them in, in surveys, in polls, are people as outraged as analysts are? Are they as concerned about the vote for the constitutional amendments? Actually, here we can talk about what you have already mentioned, this difference between the expert and the public opinion. Because for Many people, this vote, well, it was not a very important event because, well, part of the population, even less than one half of population, about 40%, in advance they were ready to go and vote. And uh, this part of the uh, population was mobilized by the government through all these nudges, urges, pressure to come and give their vote. And another part, a uh, very similar part, about more than one-third of population were against of these amendments, but they f- failed to uh, be mobilized. And uh, in the same report, I believe there is a part written by uh, Vladimir Gilman, which is, uh, the title is Defeat Without Battle. It's exactly what happened. The opposition and people who were against all these amendments, they failed to mobilize and present their, their point of view. Because again, according to our polls, the shares, those who were in favor and those who were against, they were rather similar, rather similar. And quite often experts say about our Figures that, well, don't publish them because you discourage us to take some measures, because it's very 
well, disappointing that all these ratings very high and so on. Here we had the event where sociological polls had to encourage people to take action, to mobilize and maybe try to uh, make what people in Chile in late 80s tried to do and succeeded with this no campaign against Pinochet. But we didn't see anything like this in, in Russia for reasons I don't exactly understand. Okay, so we're not Chile, <laughs> and indeed nothing like that happened. Do you think that in the aftermath of uh, the vote for the amendments, people who had been against those amendments, and first and foremost, I guess, against the zeroing amendment that now enables Putin to remain president for an indefinite time, do you think there is broad or deep bitterness? Do people talk about it? Do they feel really disappointed about what happened? Well, I'm not sure uh, we felt, we, I mean, my colleagues feel this bitterness very much, that it's not very visible. But what we see, that the process of uh, ratings going down of this uh, first guy, uh, Putin, uh, the process still goes on. His personal rating deter is still deteriorating, his personal appeal. And I understand that this personal rating as trust as a rating for the future because it coincides with the numbers that we get about a number of people who really see him as a candidate for next elections. So this process goes on. Other process, when we ask about the approval of the, of the government, of the president, of the overall situation, this uh, stabilized. It's for a couple of months already, it is not deteriorating further. So the situation stabilized somehow, but it's not very good for the authorities. And if the economic situation will worsen, I think we will see all these troubles and we can be, and I think protests can be ahead of us still. So it's uh, this we see in our polls. So not uh, this bitterness about the voting, but uh, the disillusionment with the regime, although it's, uh, it's not yet taking any catastrophic forms for, for the system. Indeed, and Putin's approval rating is low by his standards, but still it remains at a level of about 60%, I think, over the past months, according to your polls at least. I'm sure the situation will continue to deteriorate economically. There is absolutely no reason to expect an economic improvement. No economic expert is talking today about a possibility of improvement. Discontent is there and maybe even anger. However, do you think, and you just said that there is probably, the situation is not ideal and it is uh, probably disquieting for the authorities, but do you believe that public response may be different this time? Because usually when things deteriorate in Russia, people concentrate on their individual survival, on their individual adjustment, rather than bringing collective demands and uh, demanding accountability from the authorities. Do you think that the mood today is different? And we should indeed expect something that is not along the lines of this individualistic adjustment response, but something else? Well, I think not yet. And what I'm saying that uh, we have similar, similar numbers 
in the approval ratings, in the assessment of the situation and so on. And so I was speaking about the beginning of economic crisis early in uh, spring. And according to our estimates, it's very like two previous economic crises in the assessment of, of people. Uh, the crisis of uh, 2008 and nine, and the end of 2014. But the difference now is that at the beginning of these crises, we have the authorities' ratings at their maximums, at their peaks. And then during next several years of the well, rather declining economy, the authorities have uh, felt, felt themselves rather comfortable because the default ratings were so high. Now the situation is different. We already in the lowest point of Putin's ratings now, in the very beginning of this crisis. So maybe this time it will be different. And uh, now it's uh, not much room for the rating to go down. And in several years, we can uh, find ourselves in a situation very similar to the political crisis of 1999, when Putin arrived as a new candidate. He started with all his predecessors have approval ratings of several percent only. And so he has this ability to rise above them. So if we will go there in, in several years, maybe uh, there will be no... Uh, Putin maybe even will be in no mood to use this zeroing because uh, his ratings will be very low. But again, it's uh, still uh, several years ahead of us. Next test of the system will be in 2021 with the federal elections. And federal elections, why it is important? Because if there will be this level of discontent, the federal elections will be a synchronizing event that can bring different conflicts across the country to its surface. Now we have only several different events, several different events across the country, and no synchronizing event. Uh, next federal elections can be such a synchronizing event, and it can bring all this discontent uh, on the surface. Maybe, maybe not. Interesting you're saying that Putin may be not even in the mood to stay in the presidential office come 2024 or come 2030. Actually, one of the analysts, Nikolai Petrov, in the report that I keep quoting, forecasts exactly this, that Putin will step down in 2024. And he is the only one, I think, who is intellectually courageous enough to forecast such a dramatic development. I heard from colleagues of yours who also do focus groups that while people are increasingly angry and do not expect things to get better, they also display fear. And according to that colleague of yours, this is new, that people are really discontent, deeply unhappy about their economic situation, and still they admit that the government has grown more repressive and they are unwilling to take part, even speaking theoretically, in public protests because they are afraid of repressive measures by the government. Do you come across perceptions like that? Well, not really. Of course, something is changing, and we see more changing about the perception of, of Putin, but in the biggest cities. In the smaller cities, quite often the, the same as usual, that people t uh, tend to differentiate between Putin and United Russia, Putin and the bureaucrats, so Putin is still okay. 
in biggest cities such as Moscow, it's not uh, exactly the case. It, they're more discontent with him personally. But still, I would say in focus groups that we saw, it's the situation is still stable, stable enough, I would say. And I, I think it's better to look at the monitoring indicators of the surveys to understand the current situation and use focus groups only to go deeper into understanding what is going on and not using focus groups solely because it all depends on recruitment. This day you can recruit people who are particularly discontent and angry. Next day they are more or less fine with what is going on and still have some hope that the station can become better. So I think only using focus groups and surveys together, we can have a better judgment of what's going on. Okay, just to give our listeners an idea of where we keep talking about people are discontent and the people are angry and may get angrier still, if we look at a question that the Vada Center asks in its surveys month after month, and I mean the question about the right or wrong track of the country, I think the ratio is 42% say right track and 40% say wrong track in your most recent survey. It may be interesting to compare it to uh, similar findings, similar results in the U.S. surveys, which are only 26% right track and uh, 74 Well, of course, it varies poll to poll, but more or less, those who say that the country is on the wrong, wrong track, the country being the United States, is about three times that of people who say that the country is on the right track, just to give an idea of the perception. My last question to you, because you keep talking about the future and future elections and that the situation and public perception may change and we may see a different reaction of the public. I know that you did at the Water Center a big survey of Russian young. Can you please talk briefly about just how the young different from the older generation? Because this is also the focus of a part of the report that I've been quoting. People, experts, lay expectations on the Russian young who tend to be very much against the Zero Amendment and on other, uh, in other aspects display different perceptions. How would you describe this difference and how do you think it might play out in the future? Well, usually for many years in our surveys, we saw that the youngest generation was the most loyal to the authorities, to Putin personally. And now it is, this is changing. And this change came about only a year ago or so. So we must still monitor whether it will stay as it is, because it's very, a very new situation. Yes, we see that now it is the most critical, critical group of the regime of Putin, but the problem is that, uh, at least until now, uh, it was the most passive generation in political sense. Young people do not vote, usually. They do not, in big numbers, uh, go and protest. But again, this is probably changing. But uh, the big problem is that young people are very few in number and it's very hard for them to influence the 
other generations. But maybe in this uh, situation of growing discontent that we are having, when more and more people uh, are dissatisfied with what is going on, in these conditions, maybe uh, the young people can be then, well, they dissatisfaction can ignite the situation because they are less dependent on state propaganda, they are better using social networks, and if they are interested in something, they can check it. And in this sense, they are better than other generations. But uh, it's very hard to say what effect they will have on the changes in, in the country, also because, uh, well, it's not unconditional that they're different because they, ha they have hopes, hopes for, for example, working in uh, private companies, for going abroad to study and live there. But if these hopes will not materialize in a Russian economy which is uh, dominated by state enterprises, if they will not succeed in going abroad, partly because abroad the situation is not very safe for, uh, and very nice right now. So what next? How their current moods will change and maybe they will be more paternalistic pro-state in several years from now. We don't know, but we have to keep in mind that all this can change. Indeed. <laughs> this is a nice ending for our conversation. Thank you, Denise, and let's wait for things to maybe change. Uh, thank you. Thank you.